Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Terence J. Quinn. Terry's debut novel was 2018's The Scoop. The book introduced readers to Terry's intrepid reporter, John O'Bly. John has gotten older and wiser, but he's still interested in the truth. And today, Terence is joining me to discuss his latest novel featuring John O'Bly, Deadline. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. Their stories are the original stories, and I pay my respects. It's a strange and really trying time right now, but on Final Draft we remain committed to exploring the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture as featured on 2SER. I'll be recording at home for a while, but I'm committed to bringing you the best quality show that I can. If you are loving the show and you're finding yourself with lots more time to do some reading, why not get in touch with us at the show? You can hit me up on social media at uh, at Final Draft 2SER and tell me about your reading adventures. Now on to Terence J. Quinn's Deadline. John O'Bly's living a peaceful life in Sydney, having survived pirates and prison. Contemplating his next project, he's headhunted by Russian oligarch uh, to head up the British tabloid UK Today as its editor. Uprooting his young family and peaceful existence, Jono heads to London and he's headlong into conspiracy, terror and treason. Join me as we discuss Terence J. Quinn's Deadline. My name is Andrew Popel and I am joined on the line by Terence J. Quinn. Now, Terry is based in Noosa after a long career in journalism that's taken him around the world, working as a reporter, editor, and publisher. And Terry is currently working on a trilogy of novels set in the high-octane world of the newsroom. Today, he is joining me from his home in Noosa to discuss the second in the series, centred on his intrepid journo, John O'Bly. Welcome, Terry. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. Thanks, Andrew, for having me on your show. Now, at the beginning of Deadline, John O'Bly, he survived the events of The Scoop and he's looking for a peaceful life back in Sydney. That is, until he's headhunted by a Russian oligarch to head up the British tabloid UK Today as its editor. Uprooting his young family and peaceful existence, John heads to London and headlong into conspiracy, terror and treason. So I, I guess the place to begin, Terry, is a question that you actually pose to yourself in, in your bio on your webpage. Is there anything more thrilling than a newsroom? Can you evoke something of the newsrooms of your experience that have inspired your novels for me? Uh, well, I think uh, somewhere in the, in the book, uh, Andrew, I talk about it being uh, a jungle that, um, uh, you know, it's like a jungle. It comes awake uh, mainly after dark. Uh, during the day, newsrooms kind of are quietish places that, that people are working away on their stories uh, or uh, editing or designing, as the case may be. Uh, but the momentum of the day, you know, really uh, ratchets up uh, mid-afternoon to late evening. And, uh, you know, the noise and, the, and, the, and, the, and I guess the excitement, uh, even the, the smells start to sound like a big top. Um, and, you know, I, I liken it to, 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 you know, big beasts wake, waking up and looking for, for prey. Now, John is headhunted by, um, by a Russian oligarch, Borya Bolshikov, and he decides to move to London to take up this, this opportunity. 
It's the first of many unilateral decisions that he's going to make that have mixed consequences. And we see this in the editorials that he writes against uh, terror acts that very much sort of explode the opening of the novel. These editorials result in death threats against himself, his family, and the newspaper. And what I wondered was in this sense, this sort of recursive process, do media companies and editors have a... uh, are they both reporting the news but also having a hand in creating it? Is that been your experience? Uh, for sure. And particularly in the UK, um, the, uh, the, uh, both the tabloids and what used to be the broadsheets um, uh, are, are both pretty proactive when it comes to uh, the news. And, and that's from a, a, both, a, a, I think, a positive and a negative perspective. Uh, negative, obviously, because they're very aggressive. I, I describe it as jugular journalism. Uh, when you start the day and you identify the, the main stories and the characters that are involved in those stories, and, and basically you, you unleash the hounds to go to go to go after them, um, and and find find the facts and uh, and dig the stories. And the and the purpose, particularly of a tabloid newspaper, is to set the the news agenda for the day. So you want to come out tomorrow morning with a front page story that everyone's going to have to, uh, uh, you know, scramble to cover television, radio, online, you name it, uh, and that sets the, the agenda for the day. So you, uh, you know, the the doggy dog world uh, is a little um, muzzled these days, but it still exists. But on the on the plus side, I mean, the newspapers, again. Uh, tabloids in the main have created, um, you know, a huge social change for the, for the better. They've uh, had the laws change. I mean, in, in the UK, the newspaper I edited at one time, you know, it was responsible um, for uh, uh, getting gun control uh, after the, the Dunblane massacre. And the newspaper worked with the incoming Labour government, as it was then, t- Tony Blair, um, to to uh, create the climate to have um, guns taken off the streets. And there are many other examples where uh, newspapers have been hugely proactive in changing um, both culture and, uh, and the law for the better. Now, you mentioned the... Uh the tabloids and the broadsheets, and I feel like that's those are terms that are probably not as well understood today as they might have been even 10 years ago. So thank you for sort of unpacking that a little bit for us. But I want to think again about those headlines you were talking about. We've got, you know, the, the modern conception of clickbait, something that is designed to get you to just kind of keep going through. And it, it can be a little bit ethically dubious or at least dubious in the, the usage of your time. Is there is there anything of that in... In Jono, do you think, or is is it very much the headline needs to be created by a person with with good grounding, good morals, good ethics behind them? Uh, well, I think you know these. It's it's a great question because currently, um, you know, as, as we're all aware, it's all changing, mm-hmm. and whatever you thought of the old days of some of the uh, you know ethical decisions of newspapers in general, tabloids in particular. Uh, we're now faced with, um, you know, the, the, the power and influence of newspapers uh, beginning to dwindle uh, and move into the digital space. Um, and the, But along with that goes 
the the training and the regulation and the and the and the, the basic concept that yeah we're, we're trying to put a newspaper out that, that is uh, as accurate as we can make it and and uh, and you know uh, um, and and we're going to abide by the law and we're going to push the, the limits but we're going to largely abide by the law nowadays it's you know, vloggers, bloggers, and and vloggers. You know, it's uh, influencers and people who are writing um, stories that and and, and columns uh, that are basically spoking products and and, and companies um, um, uh, for money. So the old days where we were, you know, people, you. Uh, companies, institutions, governments were making informed decisions based on what they'd read in 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 in, in the in the press. Um, you know, now that that's on its way out, how are people going to make those informed decisions in the future? When you know you're reading uh, material which is prepared by people who are getting paid by companies to produce it. I want to continue then with this uh, this role of the editor and your protagonist, Jono, because he very much comes into the role nervous, but wanting wanting to shape it, wanting to do a good job. But I also found him to be less a uh, less an inspiring creature at times. Throughout the novel, he he's absent from his family. He ignores the danger to those around him. Uh, and, and can be quite violent and reactive. This single-mindedness, though, it also helps him see through the story, the story that we're going to keep in a spoiler-free bubble for re- readers to discover. <laughs> I wondered, when you get to the top, when you are at the... You're, you're guiding this high-stakes game, is goodness a luxury? Uh, look, it, it, it's an incredibly uh, pressured position. I mean, you, you, on one hand, you've got... Uh, a, a lot of power uh, and, a, and a fair degree of influence. Uh, I mean, you know, people will pick up your call, you're the prime minister or, or you know, uh, big business or whatever. But uh, alongside that, you know, huge responsibility and 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 and, and uh, pressure uh, from cutthroat competition, the constant deadlines, the decision making, the political intrigue, and as I mentioned there, the, the legal constraints. So uh, people, you know, the, the, it, it, it was certainly uh, true in the UK. I think it's less true these days that a lot of editors were, let's be honest, despots. You know, mm. they and they had to be. They had to make decisions on the fly. Um, you know, uh, you know, one every five minutes. You could be sitting in the loo in the in, in the office and, and still be taking calls. People demanding decisions uh, to be made. So I don't think you can afford to be, you know, reflective or, you know, you're largely working on adrenaline and, and instinct. And, of course, you're going to make some bad decisions along the way. But, um, you know, if you – and I think John, you know, is basically good at heart and he is trying to do the right thing. And uh, um, uh, but of course he's flawed, and he's he's gonna he's gonna do some 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 terrible things along the way. Yeah, you show some you show some pretty cataclysmic consequences for the the, the perhaps oversights uh, that he has made. Uh, such as sorry, what, what, I really don't um, want to spoil. I really don't want to spoil a very okay. big part at the end of the book. But there's a there's yeah. a certain thread that he had downplayed that that. Uh, oh, yeah. I feel like yeah. I can use the analogy blows up in his face. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, we do call it an incendiary political thriller. Uh, look, sure. Uh, but, you know, um, the newspapers and, uh, and newspaper editors are subject to threats all mm. the time. I mean, I could tell you some things I warned, but, you know, that, that would make your, head, your hair curl. Uh, unfortunately, mine can't curl because I don't have much of it left. <laughs> and that's largely because of uh, the, the pressures uh, I was under at one time. Uh, look, threats come uh, almost daily. Some of them are, are uh, legal, as in, you know, we're going we're gonna to destroy your newspaper and all this type of thing. Others, I think there's one scene in the book um, which is uh, 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 largely true, uh, and that's where the cardinal rings uh, John and threatens him that uh, he will instruct all the the parish priests to tell their their congregations the following Sunday to stop subscribing to the newspaper. Uh, now that actually happened uh, um, to me. Mm. So, you know, uh, uh, a lot of the subplots that are intertwined with the with the two main uh, uh, plots are are true. You know, they're, they're based on on stuff that happened, uh, with uh, the names changed to protect the guilty. But uh, uh, so, look, the pressures are real, and um, they're not all just you know uh, uh, legal or 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 you know threats from advertisers to to withdraw. Uh, the business, etc. Uh, a lot of them come from gangsters. They come from uh, politicians, uh, and they're, they're serious. And and uh, and occasionally they they threaten violence. So um, while inevitably in a in a in a, a novel, and let's be honest, I'm writing what I call gulp fiction. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna push that. That you know that that concept, mm. um, but as we we both know, journalists around the world are still being killed, um, uh, probably mm. on a daily basis. So, yeah. <clears throat> media media freedom is such an important discussion, and I actually wanted to come to one of those pressures that you mention. Uh, now, now Russian oligarchs do not tend to engender trust in many people, but I actually thought it was really interesting to contrast Deadline's Borya Bolshikov, Bolshi, with the reality of media ownership in countries like Australia, the UK and the US. Now, I'm sure we do not need to invoke any particular names here, um, but what are your thoughts on the way media ownership shapes the news business and how did you leverage this for your story? Uh, well, look, it's always in the back. You accept a job. So I, I took a job with Mirror Group in the UK, which, um, uh, you know, was the, originally the the uh, much maligned Bob Maxwell. And uh, and, and he, he uh, uh, justified that, you know, that, that, that viewpoint. Uh, but, the, but the Mirror Group was traditionally, for, for decades, um, um, a, a Labour-supporting newspaper group. And I t- accepted the job of, of, uh, as editor of, of a newspaper in Scotland called The Daily Record, knowing that, you know, we, we, we would be coming at stories um, uh, from that perspective. We were, we, you know, we were supporting uh, the Labour Party um, and we were trying to um, get them elected. So, uh, sure, it colours kind of how you view that, you know, you're looking at the news through that kind of prism. Uh, but, you know, the idea that, you know, um, 
the the proprietor is going to call you every day and demand you know that you do it, this or, or that or whatever uh, you know doesn't happen it certainly doesn't happen these days maybe it did you know 50 years ago um you might get the odd call at midnight from the proprietor unhappy with something uh no you these days it's more you know you you you're left uh to uh make your own decisions but you know I guess where you, which side your your bread is buttered. Mm. So you're not going to necessarily um, go out on a on, on a limb. Uh, it would ha- there would have to be a great reason to do that. But you know um, the idea of a Russian oligarch. Some some people have said, well, how could that happen? You know, uh, uh, owning a newspaper in the UK, uh, particularly a market leader. Well, that. That's actually happened. There, is, there was a, a guy called Lebedev who uh, was and is uh, a Russian oligarch, and uh, he um, uh, owned the Independent at uh, one time and the Evening Standard. And, um, you know, uh, so the idea that people, um, you know, that, that regulation can work against uh, uh, people with money um, you know, uh, it obviously is is uh, ridiculous, and, uh, and and people at Bloomberg are, are are proving that you know they're prepared to use that money to further their own ends. Would you say that something like foreign ownership is more of a concern than an amalgamation of a large number of sort of media outlets in the hands of one person whose whose nationality might you know broadly look sympathetic to the country? I'm really, I'm really skirting around the fact that I'm talking about Rupert Murdoch here, aren't I? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, you know, the the, the, the whole landscape has, has shifted. Mm. So the idea that you know someone like Murdoch, and I only, I only briefly worked for for Murdoch um, uh, for you know about eighteen months or something. So I had no sort of dog in that particular fight. But you know, the idea that that in 2020 Murdoch controls the media in Australia, you know, is patently ridiculous because apart from the forces of, of the ABC and, and uh, what used to be Fairfax, etc., cetera, uh, um, lined up against them, uh, the plurality of the media via, you know, the digital disruption is such that, you know, um, the the the, um, the either, you know, one view or, 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 the, or the opinions of one man um can dictate the future course of a country. It's just painfully ridiculous now. Well, since we're since we're talking on an independent radio station, and we will be going out not only as broadcast but uh, as a podcast, let's get digital because a part of the reality of the news office that you show us is this bird's eye on editorial meetings, the characters that inhabit them, and attention that we see arise really early on is that challenge to print from the digital realm. Jono dubs his digital content editor the meerkat, and he kind of only begrudgingly comes to respect what that offers to circulation as the, as the novel progresses. How do you see the challenges to traditional print from digital platforms? Um, okay, well, let's, can I just take you back about 30 years when I was, I think, first an editor? When I was about 32, I think, I edited a newspaper in Yorkshire. A daily, a daily paper in Yorkshire, uh, in in the UK, and um, you know the 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 uh, it was a what we call a, an evening paper, um, so or you know printed in the afternoon, several editions. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that the one the the 
struggle to get late news in the paper. There was something called the fudge box, which you know, today nobody would remember that. A little box at the, on the foot of the back page, and the the presses were geared up that you could print little headlines in that. You know, uh, at the very very last moment, and it was a kind of matter of pride for journalists and editors to to try and cram that box with as much late news as we could, because that's kind of the business we were in. So fast forward 20, 30 years, the idea for us that we could actually get news out instantly was incredible. And, 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 and editors broadly uh, embraced the concept of that. The problem came, Andrew, in my view, and this is you know, me speaking personally, in my experience, was when they try to force feed that and they, you know, newspaper companies, it was almost like the Y2K thing. I don't know, you know, again, if your listeners will remember the Y2K um, uh, fiasco. And I was in New York at the time working in, in America and a company I worked for spent something like, you know, $20 million sort of fireproofing uh, computer systems because the fear was that, you know, every computer around the world on, on the stroke of, you know, midnight to the year 2000, um, computers would crash and, and we'd lose business and all the rest of it. And that turned out to be a complete damp squib. So, again, fast forward, uh, the, the race to become digital to, to move into the digital space uh, just became crazy to the point where the uh, profitable newspapers with fairly still strong circulations um, 10 or 15 years ago rushed headlong into this idea, we're going to put everything out instantly and we're going to put it out free. And what happened was readers said, oh, thank you very much, I'll you know, stop my subscription, I'll stop buying my casual copy, I'll just go online and get my news for free. <clears throat> and so, as a result, circulation started to shred, and the revenue, uh, which, you know, people said, well, you know, we're going to get a lot more revenue out of digital. Well, that didn't happen. Um, so, you, you know, the legs were being cut off newspapers because... We were uh, putting out news for free. Circulation's gone down, and the advertising uh, started to follow, follow, you know, that people, the advertisers were asking for discounts, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the problem here, Andrew, wasn't, you know, going digital. It was going too fast. And instead of creating a transition period where we say, right, you know, uh, uh, we're going to fade out print over 20 years, say, and, you know, there'll be a crossover somewhere in, in that timeline where digital um, becomes, you know, profitable and, and produces more revenue. And at which point we can invest in uh, 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 news operations for digital. Because up to that point, and I still think it's largely the case, most of the content for the digital platforms came from the print journalists. And a print journalist, instead of writing, you know, a story for the paper or maybe two or three that day, he was having to, he or she was having to do, um, you know, two versions, maybe three, um, you know, uh, and they would probably be asked to be taking pictures or, or video um, uh, alongside that. So the amount of content was getting um, reduced as well because they weren't adding reporters or 
or you know other specialists to to uh, take up the slack. So <laughs> it just seemed to me that you know this mad long rush to go digital uh, um, was completely the wrong strategy, and that's when I bowed out in 2010 and started writing books. It, it actually sounds as you were describing that. It sounds like these are the precursor conditions for what we what we see now, which is very much a need to drive, I guess, eyes on page because what little uh, advertising there is really, you know, needs you looking. Uh, but while we need more, we also you, you described a shrinking of the actual content and perhaps. Uh, you know, splitting into camps, splitting into teams. These are the these are the precursors for what we now kind of have dubbed the fake news environment, where people are putting things out to get views, uh, yeah. and the quality, the quality. I actually, I that that brings me to my my next question because, as the novel's action sort of reaches its penultimate moment, we have Jono think to himself, "I have to finish this." Um, that's a bit of a that's a bit of an action. Uh, sort of an action cliche, but it also does link us to this this idea and the rationale of the fourth estate as a necessary tenant of a strong liberal democracy, that they hold the powerful to account. And that's what Jono wants to do. He has to see this through to the end. I don't want to spoil Jono's adventure for the reader, but can you actually talk to me a little bit there about the press's role of holding power to account and and fulfilling that sort of ideal of the fourth estate? Uh, well, I agree with it 100%, and uh, that, that that's been the case uh, for the last century. Um, I go back to my earlier point. I think that democracy is in danger because uh, of the the lessening, shall we say, of the the, uh, the, the strength and, and, and reach of, of of newspapers. I mean, no doubt there'll be editors around the country shaking their heads at this and saying, oh, rubbish. But the fact is that... Uh, circulations are, I mean, uh, in circulation in the UK, more, most recently, the, you know, the national papers have gone down something like 15% in the last couple of years alone. Uh, so the, 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 the once, you know, multi-million uh, circulations that, that, that newspapers enjoyed are now in the several hundred thousand. So inevitably, alongside that, the power and the influence and the, and the, the, the position that they have where they can sort of um, uh, influence uh, the, the great and the good uh, have dwindled alongside that. But what is it being replaced by? I mean, I'm, so I'm, I'm asking you, actually, because I, I, the, the, the answer is, is, is terrible to imagine. It's been replaced by people with, uh, with vested interests who, who um, have no training, no uh, interest in the truth per se, um, no thought that you know they've got to be regulated or, or abide by uh, ethical or legal principles. Uh, now, where does that go in the next ten or twenty years? And newspapers disappear. Sure, they may still have a, an online presence. Um, some of the news news uh, websites are doing doing pretty well these days, um, but it's never going to be the same. And so the fragmentation of that means that um, uh, people's uh, decision making, whether it's voting in the, in the upcoming council elections, etc., um, come, coming from a position where they don't have um, objective information that you know they can base those decisions on. 
Thank you so much, Terence. This has been just this has been such a great chat about the role of the newspaper. And I, I want to remind the listener that I am speaking with Terence J. Quinn. And if you would like to really get deeper into this struggle to hold the powerful to account, Terence's latest book is Deadline, and we see editor John O'Bly take on some of those forces that we have just been discussing. Terry, look, this is this has been a real pleasure to chat and thank you also for your your insights coming from your years of experience that have helped craft this novel. I've been great. Thanks, Andrew. I've enjoyed it. It's shaken me up a little bit thinking about all of that. So uh, thanks for some great questions. That's it for this great conversation with Terence J. Quinn. Terence's latest novel is Deadline, and it's out now through Simon & Schuster. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia, and also, at the moment, uh, under a doona in my house. <laughs> the show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 SER. You can click subscribe in your podcast app to get a great new great conversation every week my name is andrew popel i will be back next week with more great conversations from final draft till then happy reading